Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. Unless you are um, a lab experiment, there is a woman in your life who you can call or have called mom, and whatever that experience was, pause sometime today just to bless her in Jesus' name. If she's still with you, find some tangible way to express to her that you acknowledge the hardness of this task and the sacrifices she's made, even clumsily, to be your mom. I thought about preaching a Mother's Day message, but I decided against it. And I decided just to press through and keep preaching in this series on marriage. But then maybe three or four times over the course of these last 20 years at Harvest, um, something strange happens every now and then where I have a sermon already written, it's in the can, it's ready to go, and then, and it always happens without fail in the middle of the night, I feel like the Spirit visits me and downloads an entire message. And that happened to me Wednesday night, I guess early Thursday morning. I woke up at maybe 4.30 in the morning, and I just picked up my phone and just started typing. It was as if I woke up with such a clear thought, and with this particular passage in mind. And so I just went with it. I trusted God, and that's the message that I'm going to bring this morning. (laughs) So maybe the Lord is wiser than us, and he knows what he's doing, but maybe this is the word our church needs to hear this morning. Um, The title of the message is Let It Go. And I thought about bringing Jeannie up and singing the duet, (laughs) but it's, it's not about that. But in a way, it is, because that little Disney song, that it, it tells an important thing. If you don't want to live alone, if you actually want to be in relationship with anybody, then you have to discover how to forgive. Because without forgiveness, there is no such thing as relationship with anyone. Consider that some of us even struggle to forgive God, and he's perfect, So what hope do we have to live with others unless we learn how to forgive? So we're going to look at Psalm 78. We're going to look at verses 37 to 43. And here's what it says. By the way, just to let you guys know, the confidence monitor is black. It's it's not working. Um, Psalm 78, verses 37 to 43. Here's what it says. Their hearts were not loyal to him, and they were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he was merciful. He forgave their iniquities and did not destroy them. Time after time he restrained his anger and did not stir up his full wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a passing breeze that does not return. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the wasteland. Again and again, they put God to the test. They vexed the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power the day he redeemed them from the oppressor, the day he displayed his signs in Egypt, his wonders in the region of Zoan. It's the word of God. 
Last evening, a small handful of us, we went to a, a wedding um, to bear witness to the marriage of two young friends who I remember as little kids, and they have grown up. We also realize that now our group, our little group from Harvest, we're the old folks at the wedding now. People bow to us and stuff. It's just embarrassing. But <clears throat> here's what I remember feeling last night. And they got married in the same room that Jeannie and I got married in. So that room, every time I'm in a wedding there, it has this power over me. And I just thought about how happily every marriage starts off. I mean, aren't weddings times of such optimism and joy, two people standing before God and in front of all the people they love the most in this world, and they are so in love, so committed, so hopeful for the future that they would stand in public and make a confession of love, a promise under covenant authority with, with each other. And the truth is, on that day, they are absolutely sure that everything is going to be great. They go from this amazing ceremony to embark on the best vacation of their lives. Let me just tell you right now, your honeymoon is the best vacation you'll ever have. It's all downhill from there, baby. Because that trip, after all that grueling preparation, all the smiling for six hours, a thousand photographs, you're going to relax with a person you hope to grow old with. It's fun. Usually the weather is nice. There's a lot of activities. You're flush with cash. But then you come home from the honeymoon, and the serious business of life has to start up. And because we are who we are, it doesn't take very long before you start to reveal that you are not the perfect cake topper bride and groom that you imagined yourself to be. It's not long before you start making mistakes. And let's not, let's not sugarcoat it. It's not long before the, your inner jerk starts to show itself, right? It's not just mistakes like, <laughs> oh, that's a mistake. The stuff we do is more than mistakes. We're just kind of nasty people from time to time. And you know, at first, as you break the habits of singleness and individuality and you act out of self-interest, you hurt the other. It's easy to let it go at first, isn't it? Because you're still in love. And you say, oh, it's all right. Don't worry about it. We've got 50 years to figure this out. Don't worry. But you know what happens after a little while? Is that that violation, that oops, becomes again. And then it becomes again. And then it becomes again. And after a while... What seemed like just a moment of weakness starts to feel like it's the way they are. And then what seemed like, oh, we're having just a bad season, starts to feel like, is this what my life's going to be? Is this our new normal? And when the patterns of violation last long enough, it starts to feel like your partner stopped honoring their half of the covenant. Doesn't it feel like that sometimes? Like, do you ever mutter under your breath, I'm keeping my side of the bargain. Nice to see that you've forgotten your vows. I'm trying really hard here. Where's your effort? Where's your pressing, your sacrifice? You always point out the things I'm doing wrong. What about you? Are you so perfect? 
When do you have to try a little bit? When do you have to be the martyr? When do you have to suffer and take the hit for us? And after a while, this narrative starts to get stronger and stronger until you're convinced that's the only story we have. You're terrible, and I'm stuck. And it feels like they've broken the trust between you, a trust so sacred that once it's broken, you feel very alone, and you're not sure how you're going to keep moving forward. Now, to some extent, maybe you haven't gotten there, maybe you you feel like you never will, but I believe that every couple, to some degree, will feel those feelings, will say those words under their breath and eventually out loud to the other. So far, it's not the most feel-good Mother's Day sermon, but hang on, because God always brings good news. When we feel like our partner has stopped honoring their half of the covenant, the question we might ask ourselves is, how am I supposed to forgive that? I mean, forgetting to pick up the milk, I can forgive. Staying out an extra hour with your friends and forgetting to call, I can forgive. But what do I do when it feels like you don't really care about what you promised before God? What do I do when it feels like I'm all alone in this? And how am I supposed to move forward when someone broke their sacred covenant with me? How do I keep going when I don't trust the person that I'm bound to by an oath? Well, here's the good news. Those don't have to be rhetorical questions. We usually ask such questions like they're rhetorical. How am I supposed to forgive that? What if the universe... Answers. What if God shouts back, I got an answer for that? There is a way to move forward. You actually can forgive that. And in fact, the only way you're ever going to have a relationship with yourself or with another human being or with God is to learn that you have to forgive. You can forgive. And without forgiveness, there is no such thing as relationship. It doesn't exist anywhere in the universe. Here's what we learn from God's word. In verse 37, God reveals that he knows exactly what broken covenant feels like. He knows what it's like to sit on our side of that equation, feeling all those feelings that we feel. It it says of Israel, his bride, his, his chosen people, their hearts were not loyal to him. They were not faithful to his covenant. I think we sometimes feel like God doesn't understand us, but I think he understands us very well. When you stand there feeling like someone you trusted has betrayed that trust, whatever God says to us in that place, he has the right to say because he has been in that place with us, sometimes because of us. And he has felt all the things We're feeling. And what he says is, because I am not like you, I have found a way forward, and I want to show you how to follow me there. In this place of repeated betrayal, look at the way that God responds to them. It says, yet he was merciful. He forgave their iniquities and did not destroy them. I love this. Time after time. 
That's the hard part for us. Once, twice, maybe, but this is time after time after time. But it says he chose to restrain his anger and he did not stir up his full wrath. Nowhere in any of this does God pretend like he was not violated. He was. The people were clearly wrong. He doesn't just gloss over that. What they did was foul and it was real. It really happened. You don't need to be merciful and forgive unless people are guilty. And the guilt is beyond question. It's there as a matter of historical record. The people we struggle to forgive, we don't have to play games of saying, oh, but you know, they're not that bad. They are that bad. It did happen. They are as bad as we remember. They are as selfish and hurtful as we recall. And yet God seeing that about us again and again and again shows mercy and he forgives and I love what it says here, and I don't want to draw the distinction too finely because the Old Testament does interchangeably use a number of different words to express anger. But notice in this one verse, it says time after time he restrained his anger and he did not stir up his full wrath. Those are two different words. And here's how you might think of it. That word anger carries something like the meaning of the emotional response to being hurt, being wronged. It's the feelings that well up naturally when somebody betrays you or offends you. Wrath is the intention to do something about it. All right? So anger is the, and wrath is the, bam. Do you get what I'm talking about? And what he says is God feels both of those things in the face of our sin. He looks at what a redeemed, saved People do. People who have been, he's revealed himself to them. He's saved them, delivered them again and again. And still they do this. And there's an anger that wells up emotionally. And it says even God has to choose to restrain it and say, no. It's there. It's justified. But I will not let this thing rise like a fire and consume me. I will restrain it. And then there's this desire not only to be offended, but to retaliate. To make things right and balance the score sheet. And that's very strong in us. And even then it says there is this fullness of wrath that wants to be unleashed and restrains it. In other words, at the moment when he could most unleash and be justified in doing it, we find that our God looks at us and he holds back. And i got to be honest with you, just understanding that up here doesn't give me any power. I've known this about God for decades. But in the moment of offense, I find it extremely challenging to be like him. And yet, I believe the only way forward for us is to learn from our God. Being in conflict being in turmoil inside, feeling terribly angry and desiring to do harm back, those are not foreign to God or to us. And yet, unless we learn from our God, we will see every relationship in our lives die. And you might be tempted at this point to dismiss God's example as impossible to follow because, hey, guess what? Pastor Dave, I'm not God. If I were omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent... If I were the maker of all things, then I think even in that place I could restrain my anger 
and not unleash my full wrath. But I am just me, and I am P.O.'d. And it's coming. (laughs) I'm not even sure if God could hold this back. When we look further at this text, though, there's this wonderful secret, this key embedded in this text that helps us understand not just that God forgives, but how he does it. Do you want to know the key to divine forgiveness? I think when a person hurts us, it has a blinding effect on us. It makes our focus and our memory very selective. And after a while, we start to form this idea that the only thing that motivates them is the desire to hurt us. It sounds absurd when you describe it to other people, and so you probably have experienced that. No, I'm serious. They're terrible all the time. There's not one good motive in them. They're just so vile. And everybody is listening going, yeah, I know there's something bad there, but you've got this idea forming now that this person wakes up to their iPhone, beep, 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 time to be evil again. A whole new day to hurt another human being, to do harm, to steal their dreams. To rob them of all joy, boom, boom, boom. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, after a while, you're so hurt so consistently, you begin to justify in your mind that maybe this is all they think about all day long. That their goal in life is to destroy mine. The malice is certainly there. Let's not pretend it's not. But along with that evil is a lot of hurt, a lot of brokenness, a lot of weakness. None of these things excuse what they do to us, but it provides the context in which we learn how to form a response. Everybody who hurts you will have evil in their heart, but mixed in with that evil will be a lot of history, a lot of human weakness, a lot of pain and brokenness that they themselves don't know how to control or master. And the mechanism of divine forgiveness, the way God looks at us in our pathetic state and forgives us, is this in verse 39. He remembered that they and we were but flesh, a passing breeze that does not return. In other words, God forgives us by remembering our frailty. He remembers that on the best day of our lives, we are nothing more than flesh. We're finite. We're temporary. Even a full human lifetime is not long enough to work out all the junk that makes us so weak, so imperfect, so much less than we'd like to be. I think we're very quick to be mindful of this truth for ourselves. When we hurt other people, we very quickly catalog all the extenuating circumstances, the history, the the things others have done that have brought us to this point in life. All of that is also true. We're not making a lot of this up, but what I'm saying is when we do the hurting, we're very quick to remember that it's not just evil, but a lot of other stuff that is swirling around in this frail heart of ours. We remember our own frailty, but we're very slow to remember the frailty of others. I think that's at the heart of all the enduring conflict that we see in the world around us. That we are so quick to remember 
how weak we are. But we make so little room in our hearts for the deep human frailty of others. I think God knows that we intend to be so much better than what we actually do. I think he knows that we wish we were more noble, more persevering, more selfless than we actually are. But he also knows that we are too frail to ever be fully that person we wish or imagine ourselves to be. And I think he knew that if he did not show mercy, it would be impossible for him to have any kind of relationship with us that lasts. Because as beautiful as our words of intention and promise might be, he knows we are too frail to keep those words. And if he does not release us and remember our frailty, he cannot know us and have a relationship with us. So he remembers that we are frail and that we are only flesh. Do you remember when Peter asked Jesus this question? I think it, I have a slide of it here. Matthew eighteen twenty. Do you remember this question? <laughs> and he thought he was going to be the, the gold star valedictorian of the discipleship crew. He said, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? Peter, you got something on your nose there. And he really expected Jesus to be like, seven times? <laughs> Truly, I have something to learn from you. That's not, right? That's not what Jesus says to him. You know what Jesus says to him? He goes, Peter, you doubled more than doubled what the law requires, and you haven't even come close. Let me give you a number. It's your number times infinity. You just don't ever stop. It's the only way that you're going to have that somebody else in your life. And when Peter heard this answer, you'll recall that he was very dejected because it seemed like an impossibly high standard. How, many, what, how can anybody go on forgiving another person who's hurtful over and over? I mean, I got one life, one shot at this. Are you saying I have to waste it forgiving this fool forever? Where's the justice in that? How can anyone do it? And yet Jesus unflinchingly looks at him and goes, that's just how it works. There is no expiration, no upper limit on forgiveness. It is essential to relationships, and without it, there are no relationships. I wonder if Peter would have felt differently about Jesus' answer if he'd asked a different question. What if he'd asked this question? Lord, how many times should someone else forgive me when I sin against them? What if Jesus said seven times, man? But, 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 come on, I'm only human. How comforting to hear the words when you ask a different question. How many times should others forgive me? Oh, infinity times. They should never stop forgiving you. That's nice. That's a good answer. I'm encouraged by that. Isn't it funny how our minds work, how our hearts work? That when we think about the frailty of others, it sickens us. But when we think about our own frailty, we weep for ourselves. Yet God says, unless you see the frailty of another, you cannot move forward 
and keep that relationship. Jesus himself hanging on a cross, watching people go about the business of murdering him. Looks at the very ones doing the killing. And in this staggering move, this unexpected move, his focus, his concern is not for himself, but for them. I don't know if I'd feel anything close to that while people are murdering me. But he looks at them in their ignorance and their venom, and he says, you guys are in for a lot of trouble. You don't have any clue what you're doing right now. One day you will, and it will strip you bare. You will come unraveled. When you, when you realize what you've just done, it'll destroy you. And concerned for them because they, they are clueless. And of course it can't be literal because when you're nailing some giant chisel into somebody's wrist, you know what you're doing, but you may not realize fully the significance of what you're doing. You can spew words, you can swing fists, but you may never fully appreciate the extent of damage you are doing to another person. You're so obsessed by your own pain, out comes the vomit, out comes the poison, and you're just purging, but you may never know in that moment how much pain you are bringing into the universe. How eternal, how significant, how cosmic in scope this wrongdoing of yours is. You may never know the effect it's having on the other human being because you are so mindful of your own hurt. Yet we can learn from our Lord because at the moment he is being murdered, somehow he finds a way to forgive and release. And the way he does it is the way the Father does it. He remembers that even while they're hammering the nails into him, they are frail and incomplete. They don't realize the significance of what they're doing. If he for a moment believed that they fully understood, where could the forgiveness come from? But he sees their frailty, and he says, God, don't hold this against them. Open their eyes so they see. Give them a chance to understand and repent. The only way that we're going to maintain any relationship in our life is through forgiveness. At the moment, the climax of their hurting us, we release them. That's the only way that relationships can be preserved. Another way of saying it is that good behavior is not what keeps relationships together. Forgiveness is. We like to believe that if only you would do everything perfectly all the time, we could hang together forever. And I guess that's what heaven will be. (laughs) Is we will be perfectly good to each other all the time. But on this side of heaven, that doesn't exist. Do you see that? And if you found that person, they would leave you in a New York minute. Because you're not like that and neither am I. Jesus' little brother, James... It's so weird to call him that because he's such a giant of the early church. But James, Jesus' baby brother, wrote an an amazing letter to the church. It's called the Book of James. And in the second chapter, he has this little line that is so beautiful. He says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Because judgment 
has this power of what? It shuts relationships down. Guilty! We're done! As if it's some kind of cosmic newsflash that the person I'm with is not perfect. Guilty! I sentence you. We're done. And that's a kind of resolution, but it's the kind it's hard to live with because it's so final and yet it's so incomplete. What James says is that mercy is better than judgment. It triumphs over it because mercy keeps the door open. And it says that this relationship might yet live. Judgment will close the books, but it will close it before you finish reading to the end of the story. I wonder growing up as Jesus' little brother, how many times James must have experienced that very dynamic as his brother justified in his anger. Those are my goldfish. Why would you eat them? I was, I was waiting all day after school to eat those goldfish. And they were gone. And James with little, little orange crumbs all over his mouth goes, Sorry. And he's waiting for the fists to fly. And Jesus says, It's just goldfish. I can make more. <laughs> <laughs> How many times did James watch this mercy save their relationship so that one day writing to the church as an authority, he could say, not like in some brilliant flash of intellect, but he goes, this is the story of knowing Jesus. I grew up in the house with him. He was my big brother. And I can tell you as a testimony, mercy always triumphs over judgment. Let me draw to a close with a final illustration that connects how we go from looking at mighty God doing this to how we begin to do it ourselves. And instead of giving you an illustration from my life or from popular culture, I want to draw from a beautiful biblical story. See, I think there's something very powerful when at the climax of our conflict, at the moment where we're about to lose it and we see nothing but red, we can barely string words together, we're so upset. In that moment, there is great power in intentionally looking for Jesus, in intentionally redirecting the focus of our eyes and our hearts and our minds. When bitterness and anger and self-pity threaten to consume you, it makes a world of difference where you choose to look. Most of us, without any training, will look only in one place. We will look at our attacker, and then we will look at our own sorry state, and we will feel completely hopeless. There was a man named Stephen who goes down in history. I'm not sure if you would want Maybe you want to be the first at everything. He was the first to be killed for his faith in Christ. He was the first Christian martyr. At least that is recorded for us in the history of Scripture. Stephen was one of the second-tier leaders of the church at the time, a man of proven maturity, a man who the rest of the church acknowledged was full of the Holy Spirit. And one day he found himself in a gathering where he began to preach this spontaneous sermon And it was a beautiful sermon. If you read the sermon that Stephen preached, it was a great role model 
for what preaching ought to be. But as often is the case, as he was telling the truth, many who were hearing did not like the way it made them feel. In fact, as he kept talking, it didn't sound like the revelation of truth. It sounded like a personal accusation. And nobody likes to be accused of anything. I've learned that the hard way. I'm I'm trying to learn how to better state the truth because when I actually just go, hey, you're doing this, I've rarely met somebody who enjoys that experience. I don't like it. I don't like when someone goes, Pastor Dave, can I just share something with you in honesty? And even me, I'm like, oh, man, this is going to be bad. And they go, you know, in the last sermon, you you did this, and it really, and I'm like, ah. We don't like people aiming truth at us. It really is a very uncomfortable feeling. And as he was preaching this message to the religious leaders of his day, they were getting excited, not in a good way. And at the peak of his message, they were in a dangerous rage. They were so angry at him, in fact, and anyone living in those days would have known what was coming. They began looking around. And as soon as guys who are mad in those days start looking around on the ground, you know what they're looking for, big rocks. <laughs> I need something to throw at this fool. And they're looking and they start bending down to pick up rocks. And you know, when I was a kid, I thought stoning was like little pebbles kind of irritating you. Ow, come on, seriously, that's annoying, guys. I thought it was like little pebbles being thrown at you. If you could see a real stoning, it would turn your stomach. Baseball-sized rocks tearing flesh away from bone, deforming the face and the body until you are literally pummeled to death. That's what a stoning is. And there's a limp figure lying on the ground and people are still in their rage throwing rocks until it stops twitching. When you ever read in scripture that someone was stoned to death, don't have some sanitized picture. This was a very, very brutal scenario. And Stephen, in that moment, the only thing he'd done was to preach the truth of God's word boldly in front of people who should have been doing the same thing. Now, put yourself in his shoes. What would you have been thinking or feeling in that moment as you watch these guys bending down to pick up rocks? How would you feel when the cost for telling the truth is that you would be destroyed? It says that Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, okay, mark those words, where did he look? I would be looking at my accusers. <laughs> I'm going to remember every face. When I get to heaven, you're all dead. I know you. I see you. John, put down there. I know you too. I will be looking at my attackers. But it says that full of the Holy Spirit, in that crisis moment, in that flashpoint, God leads Stephen to look up to heaven. And as he looks, he sees the glory of God. And he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God, a position of authority and power. That's important to note that it says he was full of the Holy Spirit because nobody in that situation can look to heaven and not at their attackers. It's not possible for a human heart. That kind of maturity and poise in the heart of your conflict is not possible without help from God. But the thing is, when we ask him, he does help us. 
It's just that when we're so upset, we rarely think to ask. We say the word, so help me God, like a, like an expletive, don't we? Usually it punctuates a, a very, very ominous promise. I'm going to kill you, so help me God. And God's like, I ain't not, I'm not going to help you with that. Right? We say, so help me God, not like a request, but like an exclamation point. But what if, in the moment, the flashpoint, the climax of our conflict, we paused and said, I am not just any Joe Schmo here. I am, a, I am redeemed, a child of God. He has power over us. And in that moment, somehow you find the grace to say, God, help me. If I keep looking where I'm looking, I'm going to do harm to someone else eventually. I'm going to burn bridges. I'm going to explode. I can't stop looking at them. Help me to look at you. And when we pause to ask, so often he has this amazing power to step into that and redirect our eyes. I don't say that in the theoretical. I have experienced that so many times. My kids think I'm calm, that I'm not very angry, but that's because Jesus is a good bomb squad, man. You have no idea how many times I've had to walk away from a situation and just go, God, I'm going to go postal. (laughs) I'm begging you because right now, I want to unleash so much. And it's not perfect. I have not said that on many occasions. And I've hurt people. And I've hurt people with good vocabulary, man. I've just, I've shredded them with words. And I'm ashamed of that. But when I have paused to beg God to help me, more times than not, he has. And I want to encourage you the next time you're seeing red and you're so angry, you can hardly speak. Walk away and just for a second, in honest dependence, just go, God, so help me. I'm not going to do this well without you. I'm so angry, so grieved, so offended. Help me, God. And the amazing thing is, in that moment, so often, he will turn your eyes and show you himself. I love this painting of the martyrdom of Stephen. It's, by, it's painted in the early 1600s by a guy named Bernardo Cavallino. He was an Italian painter. And what I love about this particular rendering of this scene is the use of light and how in the midst of this darkness, as Stephen looks up, he sees something that transports him out of that situation. It gives him the ability to keep moving through this horrible, horrible episode. And he's bathed in light while all around is dark. And because Stephen looked up to heaven and not out to his attackers, look at the words he was able to say as they were stoning him. Think about those words. As they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now that sounds like really wonderful spiritual language, but he's, here's what he's saying. He looked to heaven and saw Jesus in authority standing at the right hand of God, and he realized this Jesus is worthy of honor at whatever cost. And he's powerful enough that no matter what these men do to me, Jesus will receive me. 
the men holding stones are not the ones with power here. Because he saw Jesus this way, he was able to say, I'm coming. Please be ready to catch. It sounds exactly like what Jesus himself said to the Father from the cross. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. And then, he fell on his knees, maybe half from prayer and half from stoning, and he said this, and this also is familiar. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. How can anyone say that in the process of being murdered? Because when he looked at Jesus, he was able to remember the frailty of everybody else. He's able to see clearly that there is only one hope for all of us down here. It's not better behavior. It's not better people. It's the power of forgiveness. It's the only hope for us. You can trade up and exchange out and replace all day long and you won't find the people who will make your life feel right. You can damage back everybody who has ever damaged you and you will not feel peace. But through the power of forgiveness, something amazing can happen in your relationships. If you're embroiled in a conflict right now. And it doesn't have to be just about marriage. Maybe you're a mom on the way to church on Mother's Day. You lost your stuff with your kid. <laughs> Pulling into the parking lot of Hoffman says, Hi, so you're reaching in the back seat. You hit me. I'll kill you. I swear. Oh, hold on. Hold on. We're at church. <laughs> Happy Mother's Day, right? Maybe that was you coming in here today. I don't know. But chances are, if you live long enough, you're going to get there with everybody you care about. A place of despair, of unfairness, of broken trust. Feeling like, how do you go forward from here? And I want to give you this encouraging news. It doesn't have to end there. Relationships don't have to end in conflict. But there's only one way forward. Remember these words. It's not better behavior or better people, but it's the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ that preserves relationships. There is no other hope. But when you look at Jesus, you can join Stephen in doing the impossible. At the height of your conflicts with another, you can see him and you can release other people. You can see their frailty and understand that Jesus is the only hope. I want to invite you to bow with me and let's just pray together for a little while. I wrestled a lot with this sermon because it's one of those messages that um, you can't really, you can't lay hold of it just by listening with your ears. I think the words might be persuasive or even logical, but really the, the battle happening in this room right now is not one for persuasion. I think you'd have to fight pretty hard to deny the truth of the words of this text. But it's the ability to accept them. To to let go of something that is hard to let go of. To say, no, I deserve to feel indignant. I deserve to feel unjustly treated. 
I can't let it go. It's for that person. I just want to cry out in prayer. Holy Spirit, set them free. Everything you've experienced and endured is real. You haven't made anything up. But you're not going to find freedom without mercy and forgiveness. I don't know what else to say. And so I believe Jesus invites you now to stop looking at your pain. Stop looking at the one who has caused it and look at me. Don't you remember you and I once? I looked at you and I saw your frailty and I understood that without my help, there is no hope for us. I have to release you so you can know me. So why don't we just sit in our own quiet before God and just respond to him. Whatever it is you need to pray, whatever he needs to say to you, let's just take a couple minutes and then I'll close for us and the the praise team will lead us in a song or two. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.